Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. All right, Paula, it's Christmas season. But as we all know, Christmas isn't always about jingle bells and ginger snaps, now is it? No. So I figured since it's the first Friday of December, I would tell you about a crime that happened around Christmas time. So today, I'm going to tell you the story of the murders of Ed and Minnie Morin. Edward and Wilhelmina Morin, who were also known as Ed and Minnie, were a sweet married couple who owned and ran 180-acre Christmas tree farm in Ethel, Washington State. Cool. Have you ever been to a Christmas tree farm? I have not. I've only seen it in movies. You know, there's one not too far from me. Oh, okay. And we go every year, and it's so fun. It's like one of those fun family traditions where you cut your own tree down. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. But it smells amazing. It does. And they have like a petting farm, and it's just a good time. But you know what I learned after going to the Christmas tree farm? What's that? I'm allergic to pine. Are you serious? (laughs) Yes, I learned this after cutting a tree down. That sucks. So now I don't cut the tree, but I still get to just enjoy the Christmas spirit. Well, Minnie had been married previously to a man named George Hadler, but sadly he had passed away in the 1950s. And George and Minnie had had four children together. So when she remarried Ed... Ed stepped in as a stepdad for the four kids, and it seemed that they all lived just a really happy life together. On December 19th, 1985, Ed and Minnie were hosting their annual Christmas luncheon for couples that went to their church. Now, this was something they did every year, but strangely, when the party guest arrived at their house, neither 81-year-old Ed or 83-year-old Minnie answered the door. And after lots of knocking and a little bit of yelling, hello, no one answered at all. And it was determined that nobody was at home. So after a few more minutes of knocking and trying to get somebody's attention, one of the party guests called Minnie's son, Dennis, to let him know that his parents weren't home. Now, obviously, this was really weird. They were hosting an annual party. And if your host of your party isn't home to welcome their guest... I mean, red flags are going to be going off, right? Oh, yeah, totally. So party guests and their kids start calling all around. They call any other friends or family members who might know where Ed and Minnie are, but they get no helpful answers. So one of Minnie's sons ends up getting inside their house by going through a bathroom window. And then after he was in, he unlocked the front door to let the rest of the family in. Now, when I tell you that nobody was home at this house and the doors were locked, that probably sounds normal to you, right? Yeah, as long as it's not the night of your party. (laughs) True, true. (laughs) But in general, you know, if I'm not home, my door's locked. Yeah, same here. Well, that was actually really concerning for the Morin kids. One, because what you said, it was a party and guests were used to just like walking in and making themselves at home. But on top of that, the Morins literally never locked their doors. So the fact that their door was locked really sent alarm bells off. Now those bells ring even louder when once inside the house, the Morin children could see that the house was in complete disarray. Now remember, they're supposed to be hosting a party, so the house should have been immaculate. But instead, drawers were open, 
Papers were thrown everywhere and there were boxes and boxes of bank statements all over the floor in several rooms. Now this is really strange. One, because it's not a very safe way to house your financial records. But two, because the Morins were incredibly private about their finances. They didn't talk about money. They didn't share any information about their money. So they would never have left that information out in the open for just anyone to see. So to have this personal information literally thrown all over the house on the day when they were supposed to have a house full of guests, it was obvious that something was very, very wrong. So the family obviously called the police right away. And as the police looked around the home, they noticed that there were no signs of forced entry. Police also found Minnie's purse, but her purse was actually kind of hidden behind the sofa and underneath a newspaper. And Minnie's children said she would have never have left the house without her purse. So police believed that perhaps she had left it behind, kind of hidden, maybe on purpose, maybe to like give a clue or something of the fact that she had possibly been taken. Yeah, I get that. Something out of the ordinary to be like, hey, pay attention, something's wrong. Right, like a breadcrumb trail of sorts. Exactly. Now, the blinds behind the Christmas tree were also closed, which was very, very strange as the Morins always kept those blinds open during the Christmas season so that anyone driving by could see their Christmas tree. So police are almost immediately assuming that this couple has been kidnapped. The Morins ran a successful business, as did their son Dennis, so investigators thought that maybe someone was trying to get a ransom. The next day, which was December 20th, police made an incredibly disturbing discovery that would definitely make the whereabouts of this sweet couple even more concerning. Ed and Minnie's vehicle was found in the Yard Bird Mall parking lot. Now from the photos, the Yard Bird Mall looks to me to be like a flea market type of mall. Okay. And the car was right there, parked right in the parking lot, with the windows iced up making it impossible to see through them. So the police who responded to the scene did their very best to try to scrape away some of the ice from the window to be able to like look through while doing as little as possible to disturb the scene. What they saw was that the keys were still in the ignition. But even more disturbingly, inside the car was what the police described as a large amount of bloodstains. Now, I saw photos of this crime scene, and it was definitely a lot of blood. It was all over the seats, it was on the interior of the doors, and it had even started spilling out of the back passenger side door. Oh my gosh, that's excessive. That's pretty bad when it's like pooling outside of the car. This is obviously the place of the murder. Right. There were also shotgun pellets embedded in the dashboard. There were cigarette butts found inside the car, but neither Ed or Minnie smoked. And finally, there in the car was Ed's hat. Now, just like Minnie's purse, this was not something that Ed was going to go anywhere without. Yet here it was in his bloody, abandoned car. Something very, very bad had definitely happened here. In fact, the police were able to determine that one or more homicides had definitely happened inside the car because of the volume of the blood found. It was more than someone could have survived from after having lost that amount of blood. 
And I can only imagine the fear and the concern that their children must have had at this point. What the police did not find with the car were any signs of Ed or Minnie. Now, the police did interview the Yard Bird Mall employees, and several of them said that they had seen a man carrying what appeared to be a gun hanging out around Ed and Minnie's car in the days before the car was found. So police hired a sketch artist, and a sketch was created of this man. Now, the police are obviously taking this whole situation very seriously. It seems pretty clear that Ed and Minnie had found themselves in some real trouble, and this became even more apparent when the police learned that Ed and Minnie had withdrawn $8,500 from their bank account the week before they went missing. Police interviewed the bank officials who had handled this transaction, and the woman who had spoken with Ed remembered the couple and even remembered that Ed had said he was going to use this money to purchase a new vehicle. Now, this information immediately sent even more alarm bells off for Ed and Minnie's kids. You see, they told the police that the couple had absolutely zero plans to replace Ed's 16-year-old car. The car was running perfectly, and they were not the type of people who were going to replace a good running car that had no problems. That just wasn't something they were going to do. On top of the money being missing, the bank official who dealt directly with the Morins remembers that Ed had called her that very morning asking if he could withdraw a large amount of cash that day. When she asked how much and he told her $8,500, she said yes, she did in fact have access to that amount. Now when Ed got to the bank to make that withdrawal, the money wasn't quite ready. So Ed said that he would wait in the car with Minnie. When the money was ready to go, the teller went to walk the money out to Ed, but Ed quickly got out of his car to meet her near the front door of the bank. The bank teller said that she could see Minnie sitting in the car, but it looked like there may have been other people in the car with them also, although she didn't get close enough to make out any details or to be positive. So now things are really looking fishy. On top of everything else, this large amount of money is missing, and the reason they gave for withdrawing the money doesn't really make any sense to anyone who knew them. Yeah, stuff isn't adding up. Right. And keep in mind, 8500 is a lot of money now, but this was 1985 when it was like even more. Right. Unfortunately, on Christmas Eve, a man was driving through a wooded area on Stearns Hill Road when he saw what he believed to be a CPR dummy laying on the ground. But after taking a closer look, he realized he had just found two bodies near the end of the roadway. The bodies were confirmed to be Ed and Minnie Morin. The Lewis County coroner, Terry Wilson, who performed the autopsy, revealed that both Ed and Minnie had died from a sawed-off shotgun, with Minnie being shot in her left shoulder and her neck, and Ed being shot in his back. Ed also had a wound that implied that he had been hit prior to being shot. There were drag marks in the road that looked as if the bodies had been dragged out of a car, possibly, and into the woods where they were later found. There was no other attempt to hide the bodies in any way. During Ed and Minnie's funeral, before Minnie was interred, her son Dennis put his hand on her casket and promised her that he would get justice for her murder. The following month, 
police were really, really focused on getting those sketches circulated. But they obviously wanted to, you know, make sure they had as much detail as possible. They even went as far as having the witnesses who had seen the man outside of Morin's car hypnotized to see if maybe they could remember any further details about who exactly they had seen. Interesting. I know, right? Very interesting. The sketch showed a man with dark hair, a slight beard, who appeared to be in his 20s and was wearing a green army jacket. Now, this sketch actually threw a little wrench into the police's suspect list because they thought they might have known who did this. But the problem was this man didn't look anything like the sketch. Police were thinking that because there were no signs of forced entry and because the Morins were very private about their finances, but yet the murderers seemed to know that they had a lot of money, it must have been someone close to them. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. So the police thought perhaps their grandson, Mike, who was Dennis's son. See, Mike had a history of having quite the temper, and he also had a history of getting into it with police. He was also a smoker. But when he was questioned about killing his grandparents, he did what he was often known to do. He totally lost his temper. But after calming down, he offered to take a polygraph, and he passed. He also had an airtight alibi. Mike was not their guy. So attention then turned to the seasonal workers on the Christmas tree farm. A lot of these people didn't actually live nearby, but instead they traveled in and out of the farm with the season. So all of these workers were checked out. Photos were taken of each of them, but they were all cleared. So sadly, years passed with what seemed like very little happening in the case. So it's now 1992, seven years after the murder. And at this point, hundreds of tips have come in. Witnesses have picked potential suspects out of lineups. And there were two guys that police had in the back of their mind that they thought could have murdered the Morins. These brothers were known around the town as being drug dealers and just all around bad guys. These two men were Rick and Greg Reif known as the Reif brothers. The problem was the Reif brothers were suspected of murdering the couple, but due to a lack of evidence and witnesses, police officials just didn't have enough evidence to make an arrest. Rick had been married to a woman named Robin, who had since divorced Rick. And police thought maybe they might be able to get a little information from her. So when they first talked to her, they said they would like to talk to her because they had some questions about a murder that Rick might have had information on. And she responded with, you mean the one with the old people? She then told police that Rick and Greg did kill the Morins. Then they called her and asked her to pick them up from the spot in the woods where the bodies were found. She said when she arrived, she saw Rick holding a gun, and standing over the bodies of two old people. Now here's the problem. Robin herself had a history of drugs, and she'd done some time. So police knew that she really wasn't the most reliable witness. However, the information she was giving seemed to corroborate a lot of the tips police had received from all of these other witnesses the years prior. With Rick being 
her ex-husband, police were concerned that maybe she'd had an axe to grind. But they still thought they would stay in touch with her just to see if they could get any more useful information out of her. I have a question. Okay. How much of what she's saying was already published in the newspaper? Mm, That's a good question. I don't know. But what the research I read did say was that she was able to corroborate and give more details on a lot of the previous tips that came in. Okay. So it seems to me like she knew things that she wouldn't have known if it was legit. Because a little, you know, tip would come in years later and then she would be able to expand on that. Gotcha. Kind of thing. Okay. Guess what happened? What happened? Robin died (gasps) suddenly due to heart problems. Did she have a previous history of a bad heart? I don't know, but it was, are you thinking like... Suspicious. (laughs) Suspicious. I am. (laughs) No, it was ruled, you know, natural. Okay. So it didn't seem there was any foul play behind it. But with this... The one person they had to kind of cooperate is gone. Now, at this point, a couple more years have gone by, and police have over 800 tips that point to the Rife brothers. They pretty much at this point knew that these guys were their guys, but they still didn't have enough to make any kind of arrest. So frustrating. I know, so frustrating. Well, back in 1985, the time of the murders, There was a boy named Jake Shriver who had gone to school with the Morin grandchildren at the time of the murders, so he was familiar with the family. Jake had been keeping a secret for 17 years, and finally, as a man in his 30s, he couldn't keep it anymore. So Jake contacted the police in 2002 to tell them he knew something. Jake said that on the day of the murder, he passed by the Morin house when his mom was driving him to an appointment. And he and his mom saw the Morin's green car leaving their driveway. They were behind the car on the highway, but the Morins were moving very slowly, so they passed the Morin's car. And when they did, Jake saw Ed driving and Minnie in the back seat. But there were two other people in the car, the Rife brothers. Jake said that when he passed them, he made eye contact with both Rife brothers and they definitely saw him. And Jake knew these guys well enough to know it was, in fact, the Rife brothers. So about a week later, when news of the Morin murders broke, Jake and his mom were, of course, terribly frightened. But they decided not to say anything or do anything until they had heard that the Rife brothers had been arrested. But that never happened. So a few days later... Jake was sitting outside when he was approached by Greg Rife. Then Rick appeared from around a corner. The Rife brothers told Jake that if he told anyone what he had seen that day, they would kill him and his family. So obviously Jake was terrified. To make matters worse, the Rife brothers did a daily drive-by of Jake's family's house every day after Oh my that. gosh, that's terrifying. Right. So when police hear Jake's story, they realize that the Rife brothers have been threatening all of the witnesses. So maybe, just maybe, there was more information to be found out, but for all these years, the people who knew something had been too afraid to say anything. So at this point, new detectives were on the case, and they decided to go back and re-interview all of the witnesses from so long ago. 
At this point, the police had also developed a different theory than the original investigators. Remember earlier I mentioned that originally detectives felt that the murderer was close to the Morin family? Yes. Well, the new detectives felt that the opposite was true. You see, Ed and Minnie had so much money that they had to keep it in multiple accounts. But only one account had been stolen from. There was actually a lot more money that could have been taken. But only someone close to the family would have known that. So a woman named Deborah George came forward and told investigators that she and Rick Rife had formed an intimate online relationship in 2010 after he sent her a friend request on Facebook. Now this Facebook account was a shared account with her husband Leslie who knew the Rife brothers back in the 1980s when he would do drugs with them. So apparently Rick sent this friend request to Leslie but since Deborah and Leslie shared the account Leslie approved the request. Rick obviously didn't approve of this, but Deborah said that she was so curious about Rick because of the rumors that she'd heard about him being involved in the Morin homicides, and that's why she accepted the request. Well, Deborah told investigators that she and Rick had ended up having a year long romance, during which Deborah claimed that Rick had told her that he and John had murdered Ed and Minnie. According to her, Rick said that about a week before Christmas in 1985, he and his brother Greg entered the Morins' home and held the couple hostage at gunpoint before forcing them to drive to their local bank to withdraw money. This is when the Morins withdrew that $8,500. After withdrawing the money and leaving the bank, Rick and Greg took the couple to the woods where they told Ed to get out of the car. Now, Ed refused to get out of the car, knowing that he was going to be killed. And this is when the Rife brothers hit him with an object and then shot him, killing him in the car. They then dragged both bodies to a wooded area where they would ultimately be found on Christmas Eve. The majority of the $8,500 was then spent on Christmas gifts and cocaine. So Deborah said that she didn't go to the police right away because she was completely terrified. And when she did finally tell officials her story, a computer forensic expert examined Rick and Deborah's computers, and they did confirm that there was regular contact between the two, and it appeared that they were in an intimate relationship. Deborah's husband, Leslie, would later testify in Rick's trial that in 1984, he let Rick and Greg borrow a shotgun that he had owned. He said that they returned the gun two years later, and when they did, the barrel had been sawed off. Leslie also testified that he remembered driving past the Morins' home with the Rife brothers and telling them that the Morins likely had a lot of money. So 27 years after the murder, on July 8, 2012, officers with the Lewis County Sheriff's Office bought plane tickets to King Salmon, Alaska, where the Rife brothers had moved in 1987. When the officers arrived, they learned that Greg Rife had died of natural causes a week prior. Oh man. Rick Rife was 53 years old and he was immediately arrested and extradited back to Lewis County to stand trial. While living in Alaska, Rick had worked as a truck driver and a crane operator for 15 years and when his co-workers found out about the murder charge, they were stunned as Rick was considered to be a regular hard-working guy. 
Now, over the years, police had repeatedly questioned a man named Donald Burgess, who was a former drug dealer who had had a drug-related relationship with Rick. And police felt that Donald had known more than he would admit to when it came to the Reif brothers' involvement in these murders. Every time he was interviewed, however, he would say the same thing, that he knew nothing about who had committed the murders. Well, once Greg Reif was dead and Rick was behind bars, Donald was the 76th witness in Rick's trial. Wow. He finally admitted that after the murders, Rick and Greg had come to his house talking about how they had killed Ed and Minnie and bragging about how they were going to get away with it. Donald then testified that he'd been afraid to come forward because Rick had threatened his life. He said he was very scared. He was scared for his family and scared for his kids. He didn't want to end up the same way the Morins did. Jake Shriver also testified in court against the Rife brothers. During court, many surviving children read the following statement, quote, This will never be forgotten for generations to come. How could anyone be so cruel and act with such malice to shoot two elderly and trusting people in the back and dump them in the forest? End quote. On November 11, 2013, a jury deliberated for a day and a half before finding Rick Reif guilty of seven felony counts, including murder, kidnapping, robbery, and burglary. He was sentenced to 103 years in prison. Dennis, Minnie's son, who had promised Minnie at her funeral he would find justice, said, quote, that took a big load off of my shoulders because I had made that promise and I was getting worried as I got older that maybe I was going to fail. But I had a strong support from the prosecutor's office and the sheriff's office, and we were able to get a conviction, end quote. Rick Reif maintains his innocence and told his attorney that he is not at all remorseful or apologetic for something he did not do. However, after being found guilty for these murders, Rick found himself the center of another trial, a child rape trial. What? So apparently Rick had been dating a woman back in the 80s when he had raped her then nine-year-old daughter. (gasps) Oh, my God. He then raped her again the following year when she was 10. Now, at the time, charges were brought against him, but there wasn't enough evidence to do anything with it. He got away with it. But all these years later, when his rape victim was now a woman in her 30s, she was able to tell her story. And she did. And he was convicted of child rape and sentenced to another six years in prison for that. Good. Dennis Morin, Ed and Minnie's son, attended that trial too because he said, we've all been terrorized by this man right. for decades. Right. And so he was there like to show support That's for her. That's awesome. Yeah. So Rick was a really, really bad guy just all the way around. And he'll never see the light of day again. Good. I almost wish he could live that 103 years. I do too. And just the worst of the worst conditions. So that's the story of the Morin family murders. Wow, that's incredibly sad, but I'm glad there was justice. Right, and after so many years, it was almost 30 years, it was like 27 years before the case was solved. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, upsetting because they knew it, that they've kind of known for many, many years who did it. Right. They just didn't have what they needed to get him. Yeah. And it turns out, the crazy thing was... 
it was all because of the threats made to the witnesses. Exactly. They but were such horrible people that they terrorized all of the witnesses. All of them. Because all of them said the same thing. I was too afraid. I mean, can you imagine them drive, them making a threat and then drive by? And you're a 17-year-old kid. As an adult, I would believe someone if they'd said that to me. Right. You come forward. We're going to kill you and your, your family. Right. So they were obviously just terrible, terrible people. And Rick, especially, I didn't want to get into it because it's terrible. But even before this, he had like a history of abusing animals. And, you know, he was just a really bad guy and everybody knew it. So I'm glad they finally got justice. It makes me a little sad that Greg kind of in a way got away with it just because he never paid for it during his lifetime. But right. sometimes that happens. But at least the family now has has closure. Yeah. That's so a good thing. I'm glad Dennis was mm-hmm. able to find justice for his family. Me too. So that's that story. Do you have anything for our time to kill? I do. Hey, real quick, before I forget, Brian Laundrie, did you hear? Yes. Death by suicide. I called it. Yeah, you did. I called it. I didn't want to say it because it's terrible and I didn't want it to be true, but I called it back before... When he first went missing, I said, we are never going to hear from him. Yep. He's a coward. And he is going to kill himself before... I didn't see these words. Uh, <laughs> but I kind of implied it. And then... Yeah. And then I backtracked because I was like, oh, that's a terrible thing to say. I felt... I actually felt bad for... And I almost called you and was like, can you edit that out? But we left it. And now it turns out I, we were right. I, I had the same feeling. I didn't yeah. say anything, but I had the exact same feeling. Because he was such a coward. Yes. Yeah. Death by suicide. Okay, so I was looking at, you know, those videos of things moving by themselves, like a haunted playground. Ooh, (laughs) I just got chills just saying it. (laughs) Yes. It is pretty creepy. I mean, you hear the the ghost stories of, oh, things move by themselves. But unless you really see it, I I know people have doubts. I mean, I believe. Oh, yeah. But I've also seen the videos of things moving by themselves. And it's pretty disturbing. Ooh, I really do have chills. I keep getting, ooh, yes. (laughs) Okay, so back in 1925, a massive tornado destroyed a grade school in DeSoto, Illinois. It killed over 300 students and teachers. They were hiding underground in a basement. The school collapsed on top of them. Ever since, you can hear voices of children laughing and playing. Some have even seen ghostly figures of children in tattered, out-of-date clothing. In the 1950s, there was a hospital built to treat tuberculosis in Orlando, Florida called Sunland Hospital. After a vaccine was created, the hospital was turned into a mental hospital. After reports of patient abuse, unsafe surgical conditions, and a rodent infestation, it was eventually shut down. It was abandoned, and after a trespasser fell down an elevator shaft, the building was completely torn down. We are in Orlando, and I've never heard of this place. I haven't either until this article. A playground was built and people have reported seeing the swings move on their own and heard the sounds of young children screaming and crying. Now here's the one with the video that I saw. In Fermat, Argentina, there was a little girl who died near a playground as it was being built. She never got to play on the swings in life, but you can watch the swings move on their own. There was a video. There were people standing around this A-frame with three, three swings on it. and. They all slowly started to move, but then the one in the middle picks up speed and starts swinging back and forth. Like the two on the side were kind of like going towards the middle, swinging and out, but the one in the middle, it's going out like there's someone sitting on it. Oh my gosh. Like a normal pattern for the swing to move. 
it was really eerie. Yeah. And the person filming, like, walks all the way around it. And in the beginning, you can't see trees, so you can't see if it's windy or not. Right. Even though it's moving an odd way for wind to blow. Right, Like, yeah. if the wind is bl- going to blow, it's going to move all three swings. Right. So the person filming walked around, and towards the end of the shot, you can see trees in the distance. There's no wind at wow. all. There's just no explanation for this swing moving. Oh. So creepy. And there's all kinds of videos. Like, if you really want to go and, and see these things, I highly recommend visiting YouTube. Okay, I will. Did you see the one recently where, like, a ghost took a dog's collar off? No. Okay, so it's these two dogs. I want to say they're like German Shepherds. They're in crates in a house. And the homeowner has a um, security camera. Yeah. And the dogs are going crazy. They're going like nuts, just barking, barking, barking. And then all of a sudden, one of the dogs stops for a minute and almost his hair like stands up and he like freezes. And then his collar pops off. Mm. And then that's it. But some people are like... Something took that dog's collar off because his behavior changed. And then, of course, other people are like, his collar just loosened. You can see where it just popped off, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was just interesting. It's one that was recently going around. Okay. I'm definitely going to have yeah. to check that out. Talking about scary things that you Google or YouTube or whatever. Remember, I think it may have been the Tina Watson case. At the end of it, we talked about Uncanny Valley. Yes. Which is that phenomenon, like, when we see CGI characters or, like, Something that's made to look like a human, but it's slightly is different slightly and off. creepy looking. Right. My 17-year-old is, you know, a normal 17-year-old who doesn't think I'm, like, the coolest person in the world at this <laughs> stage in his life. You know what I mean? Getting him to, like, hang out with me or talk to me about stuff is sometimes, like, pulling teeth kind of mm-hmm. thing. Well, the other day, he went to see this movie, and I was asking him how the movie was, and he was, oh, it's terrible. It was... But he loves terrible movies. He was like, it was great. It was so bad. It was so good. He loves to make fun of bad movies. And he was like, there was this one character that was like all CGI because the actor had actually passed away. And so they were, it was only like CGI. And he was like, it just had this whole uncanny valley effect. It was just so weird. And I was like, you know, you know, uncanny valley. And he's like, uh, yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I talked about uncanny valley on dolls and doom. And I never had heard of it before. Like, I didn't know it had a name. And we had this whole 10 minute conversation about uncanny valley. I told him theories I'd found about why people are freaked out by it, which boils down to maybe there was this other species that looked similar to us, but isn't us that was our enemy and you know we ended up wiping them out but since then we have been left with this fear of things that look like us but aren't quite like us he disagreed he said no I think it's just as humans we have a fear of the unknown and when you see something that looks like you but isn't it's just an unknown thing but it was just like so cool because we had this whole conversation about something that we both found super interesting which I could talk to him about anything but there's a lot less he wants to talk to me about so (laughs) uncanny valley brought us together for like 15 minutes and for 15 minutes i kept that boy's interest it was pretty cool (laughs) dolls and doom bringing teenage boys together with their moms one story at a time (laughs) thank you everyone for listening be sure to check out our website for pictures and links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com follow us on social media leave a comment And stay alive so you don't end up on the wrong side of the grass. Bye! Bye.